Well, dear congregation, I invite you now please to turn your very prayerful attention to that second reading that I read to you in your hearing there in 1 Corinthians and the 6th chapter. We arrive this evening at verse 12. We began to touch on this in our last meeting last week, but we want to now open up this verse and what follows in the remainder of this chapter more fully as Paul applies these things. Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, mindful here as what we read, are not Paul's thoughts. Every word is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. And Paul says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Perhaps some of these things might seem mysterious to you, or perhaps you might think that they're plainly obvious. Well, we'll see. These words are very profound. Many of them have been misunderstood. What is the right teaching? Well, Scripture must interpret Scripture. The Word of God reveals itself. I pray that I will be a faithful expositor of God's Word this evening for the profit of your soul and my soul. We need to before we come to these words, we need to always set everything in its proper context. We know that this epistle really was given because of a great concern that the Apostle Paul had. The Spirit of God has given him these things to write. Paul ministered there at Corinth. He went there somewhere around AD 52, ministered some 18 months. The church was established, and uh, no sooner had he left a while after that, trouble began to creep into the church. There was this party spirit where men were priding themselves in various preachers and their abilities. Rather than focusing on the content of the preaching of those men, they were more taken up with their qualitative gifts in terms of the abilities of these men, their ability to speak. We know the Apollos was a very eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, an eloquent preacher, able to communicate. And he must have been quite a preacher to listen to. And there was this sort of party spirit. Some said that they were of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos. And uh, there were even some that were saying, well, I'm of Christ. Of course, Christ is not divided. All of these men are the gifts to the church. We're told in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says to them, he says, Paul is yours, Apollos is yours, Peter is yours, Christ is yours, all things are yours. God has given you these men as gifts not to divide you, but that you might be united in the truth. And so what they were doing is they were focusing on these various preachers and they were party spirits and taking pride like some people do with their football teams here in England. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, this was a, a real culture shock to me when I came to England. 
And uh, really, it's quite sad. When their team loses, they never say, you know, well, we lost. They say the team lost. If the team's winning, they say we won. It's always the way, isn't it? People pride themselves behind their teams. People were doing this, priding themselves in their preachers and so on. And they were taking their eyes off the needful thing to be holy. The whole reason why God has called his church, it's called the church, the ecclesia. He's called a people out of this world to be holy. And so not only was there this party spirit reported from Chloe's household and the various other houses, and Paul even says, I thank the Lord that I didn't baptize any of you, just a few, he said, Crispus and uh, some others. He said, beyond that, I don't know, lest some prided themselves in Paul and that he baptized them and took a wrong spirit in him. And so there were those that were priding themselves. There was this schism in the church. And then, of course, there was all kinds of other sin taking place. There was even a man, we are told about that in chapter 5, who was committing a most terrible sin. He took his father's wife, more than likely his stepmother. We know from 2 Corinthians was still alive, the father still alive. How he must have grieved his father. But how the Lord must have been grieved, because this man was still sitting at the Lord's table. He was still a member of the church and still allowed to partake of the bread representing the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for his people, that precious body that bore the sins of his people. And then he partook of the cup, that representing the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for the remission of many of his people, the sins of those people. And that man was partaking and Paul had to write to this church to severely admonish them because not only were there these party divisions in the church, but there was this terrible sin of adultery of the worst kind and the failure, secondly, of the church members to condemn that sin and failure to excommunicate that ungodly member and reprove him severely over his sin. If he didn't, he'd need to be excommunicated. Well, they eventually did deal with him, but they were allowing, worst of all, this man to sit at the Lord's table, thus defiling the table. And Paul has to say, let us keep the feast, one feast left, that of the Lord's table. And they were defiling the table by allowing that man to sit there. They ought to have been that unleavened bread. They ought to have dealt with the leaven of sin. Well, the church was at serious fault. And then we began to see in chapter 6, there was also another sin that was taking place. There were those who were taking each other to court, perhaps even for petty matters. We should never take any Christian to court for any matter. Matters ought to be settled between brothers and sisters in the church. You take fault to your brother. If he doesn't hear you, you take another one with you. If he won't hear either of you, you then take it to the church. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 18. We're told very clearly 
That is the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that person will not hear the church, you must consider that person to be an unbeliever. He's not to be regarded as, as a church member anymore. In that, look at verse 7, they were utterly at fault, he says. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Now we must never take a believer to the law courts. We have the house of God, and Paul says, you should be judging these things among you. Is there not one that may judge in these matters? And the reason should be so obvious. Well, firstly, because we never want to bring the name of the Lord Jesus Christ into any disrepute. And we don't want to see any malice of the church shown before the watching world. We should never want to dishonor the Lord or his church. This was going on. Now, we need to make one thing very clear. That a Christian, if he, for instance, has had some work done at his house and signed a contract with a contractor who's obviously not a believer, imagine you've had a house built. And a few months after you move into the house, the subsidence, the foundations start to crack. And you've paid quite a bit of money for it. And the builder won't deal with it. You have every right to go to the authorities to complain to the building authorities and to file a complaint. And if necessary, uh, to, especially if you've got insurance and things like that, to deal with the matter according to the law courts. But that is never to be done between believers. Because believers ought to be honest and sincere. And uh, if it's ever seen before the watching world that Christians are dishonest and have a wrong spirit, well, that's a terrible blight, isn't it, on the church of Jesus Christ. So we need to make that very plain. I must stress, don't get confused with those. It's perfectly right to take an unbeliever to court if there is something uh, quite serious uh, where you would suffer serious financial loss, especially if it's a company or something like that. If we can forgive, we ought to do that. If somebody perhaps has not returned something to us, we don't always necessarily have to uh, go so far, do we? We ought to forgive, if at all possible. But if it's going to be serious detriment, particularly if it's a company that has wronged us or something like that, they ought to never and our spirit ought to never be to settle personal vendettas with people. That's always wrong. We should be uh, people that are very gracious and uh, very slow to wrath in all things. The Christian ought to be very forgiving. doesn't mean to say we ought to be walked all over. Of course not. But we should be gracious where we can be as Christians. Now we move on this evening, as Paul reminds us, remember what he did last week as we saw about defrauding, in verse 8 he says, ye did wrong and defraud, and then he picks up on this subject of defrauding other people in what follows, 
not only the sin of defrauding and malice and uh, envy and uh, deceiving others, but all manner of sin, you must know this, he says, you must know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If you have such a spirit, you must know that you are not a child of God. You will never inherit. All the children of God who are born of the Spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. The new birth is, well, it's, it's completely irreversible. I hope nobody would deny that. Regeneration is the work of God, and it's a good work. And the apostle tells us, he that has begun a good work in you will see it to completion. What he is saying is here, in verse 9, is you must be sure of this. Such a person that practices sin and has such a sinful spirit, such a person who is an idolater or a drunkard or effeminate or abuses of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, and this would include those who were defrauding in the church, taking each other to law courts, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It's not like you lose your salvation. The point is you were never saved to begin with. You must know this. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not a child of God. So you must behave like one in the church. If you truly are a child of God, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. You will know my people by their fruit. And he reminds them. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to just uh, say a few things, first of all, as we said last week, where he speaks here of those who are Christians and who will inherit, and then there are those who don't inherit, those who practice sin, and these things that are mentioned in verse 9 as a lifestyle, if this is the general tenor of their life, well, they are described as sinners. By nature, of course, we're all sinners, but we are changed, we're washed, we're cleansed, we're made anew. And we saw last week, didn't we? Why has Christ died? Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not only was he called Jesus, Yeshua, a shortened name for Joshua, but he is also Emmanuel, God with us. But he is God with us that has come to live and to abide in our hearts. Romans 8 verse 9, He that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 17, Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. They don't come back. Yes, sin will appear. There is what we call remaining corruptions. But they have to be, and they will be. The Spirit of God now has come to live in that person, and those remaining corruptions will be mortified. If ye by the Spirit, says Paul to the Romans in Romans 8, do put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Remember what we saw in 1 John 3, 6. Whosoever abideth in him, that's Christ, sinneth not. 
That's not as a general practice or a tenor of life. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. You've never seen him. You've never known him. That's the point. You've not seen him by faith. You've not known him in your heart. You don't understand Christ. You've not so learned Christ. When we learn of Christ, we learn to put away sin. We learn that he hates sin. There John has in view where he says, Whosoever sinneth abideth in him, sinneth not, and whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. That person's never seen by faith the Son of God. Doesn't understand Christ, neither known him, does he say. You see, the new birth is completely irreversible. You know, when somebody says, I was a Christian, I often say, you can be absolutely sure they never were a Christian. That person practices sin, a person that is a habitual uh, cursor, blasphemes, takes the name of God in vain, never seen Christ, never known Christ. If you know Christ, you know he hates sin. You know he loves righteousness. And we've been seeing, we saw it last week, the greatest need for this church at Corinth and this church here is the need to be concerned about a righteous, godly life because that is God's great concern, isn't it? What's God's great concern for this church? Is it numbers? Is it to, to see all these seats filled? That's not the greatest concern. His concern is, he has said, be holy, for I am holy. The Lord will save his people. We don't need to worry about that. That's the Lord's business. That's the Lord's work. We preach the word. It's the Lord who regenerates and who brings members in. Now, we saw last week, if you just go back to verse 11, he reminds them that this is how they were. Some of them, and such were some of you, but ye are washed. What does he mean there? We, we thought about that washing of the regeneration. But I didn't take you to a couple of verses. One of them is Titus 3, 5. And the work of regeneration is spoken of as washing. And we'll see it in Ezekiel as well. Titus 3, verse 5, where Paul says, we're not saved by our own righteousness, we're saved by grace. And then he says here in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is spoken of as a washing. And we'll see how in a minute. And the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's a promise. If you turn to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, it's a promise that is given there. Ezekiel 36 and the verse 25, let me show you where the Lord Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, we must keep in view here the water, not necessarily being a man being physically born and his mother breaking water so that he is born, but there is a sense here in which it is the work, the Spirit of God is pictured as that washing of the water of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25, and all the reformers teach this. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, says the Lord, 
and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. The spirit is likened to that of water. Remember how on that great feast day, the Lord Jesus spoke of the spirit flowing out of a man that has been born of God. How even the spirit will flow like out as water to that man. So there in Ezekiel 36, 25, Stephen Sharnock speaks very well on this, and it opens up this twofold work of the Holy Spirit. When we are born again, it's a wonderful thing. It's like the person is washed and made anew, regenerated. Spirit brings life, and uh, the law of God is written upon our hearts, and a new spirit will I put within you. It's like the person is new. But of course, there will be remaining corruptions. Still, something of the old nature is there in the person. But the person is entirely new. They're not the same as they were. It's the work of the Spirit. We were even told there in John 7 that when he spoke of that water, he spoke of the Spirit of God that would be poured out. Now, of course... When the Christian is saved, really what Paul is saying here, there are new privileges now as a Christian, aren't there? We have the wonderful privilege of the Holy Spirit. That We stop and think about that every day when we rise up. God, by his Spirit, is living in my soul. The Spirit of the living God is in me. It wasn't there before. That's a tremendous privilege. And we can grieve so easily the Spirit of God, can't we? And we have this spirit of a, of a new person. What a glorious privilege that is. We're new in terms of quality. Of course, the old man is still there, in a sense, but we're new. We're not what we were. It's a new quality of life. It's life now, really, isn't it? With God. And the Spirit of God is now living in us, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. God doesn't say, you can lose your salvation, it's going to come back. They've passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Ecclesiastes 3.14, remember that verse, especially those that have a tendency to think we can lose our salvation. We are told very, very clearly, in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 13, 14, and 15, that it's God that does it that we should fear before him. And whatsoever God does, we're told, he does forever. It's perfect. His work is always perfect. And, uh, but it doesn't, I suppose, the Christian is, is the one who may even doubt himself. The true Christian will doubt himself. The careless believer, the empty professor, he won't care less about sin. He won't worry about sin. He'll say, I signed a card some years ago. I put my hand up. I was baptized. Don't you know I was even maybe christened? Can you believe it? Some people take confidence in christening. There's no christening in the Bible. There's no infant baptism. Why would you even take confidence in that? 
or even your baptism as a believer. We believe in credo-baptism, not pedo-baptism. But we don't even take confidence in that. It's the new birth. It's the circumcision of the heart which Paul speaks of. That's the new creature. As he says, circumcision availeth nothing but a new creation, says Paul to the Galatians. Now, as to sin's former power, you are set apart now for holiness as a Christian. This is what he's saying in verse 11 and 12. You are washed. You're set apart now for holiness. Look at the verse. But you are sanctified. The word sanctified can mean to be set apart. You're justified. As to sin's guilt, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And when God justifies a sinner, he has another proof that you can't lose your salvation. Romans 8, verse 30, we're told, aren't we? For whom he foreknew, he did predestinate. And for those whom he did predestinate, he did what? He also called. And those whom he called, we're told, he also justified. And those whom he justifies, he will glorify. It's the unbreakable chain of five glorious things that God does. He knows them in all eternity. He calls them in time, predestinates them, calls them, justifies them. And whom God justifies, he will also glorify. Here we're told we're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you can be sure of it. Romans 8.30, those who he justifies will be glorified. The sinner will never lose their salvation, never. He that's begun a good work in you will see it to completion. It's important, you know, when we're studying these doctrines that we tie all of these verses together. They are wonderfully knit together. Salvation cannot be lost. It's of God from beginning to end. Now, there might be some verses that appear to teach that, but they don't. They don't. For instance, Hebrews 6, we've seen it many a time before. Now, Paul is going to deal with something here with regards to those perhaps who are very careless and abusing their Christian liberty. It was perhaps what we'll see in verse 12. Many faithful scholars believe that this was perhaps a common saying because Paul uses it again later on in this epistle. They used this saying, perhaps, some suggest, so that they could just sin. You know, let's look at the verse now. Look at what he says. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. There were perhaps those saying, it is suggested, everything is lawful now for me. As a, I can do anything I like. Paul is going to give us two principles here whereby this is not how the true Christian thinks. And he'll touch on this in verse 12. It's very important that we see this. He's going to qualify what he means here in verse 12. What does he mean by all things are lawful unto me? Does he mean everything without exception? He can't mean that. He can't mean everything is lawful. Is it lawful to murder somebody? Is it lawful to commit adultery? Is it lawful... Uh, to be an abuser, to be a railer, 
He cannot mean it's okay to do anything. You can worship any god. You can be a drunk. You can be a glutton. You can murder people. You can commit adultery. He surely is not saying that. So you can't take this phrase here in its absolute literal sense. You have to follow what he applies now and how he applies it. It's likely, many suggest, that it was used, the intended reason for it was having to do with meats. This is what he says in verse 13. Before we open up verse 12, I want to show you. He says, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. So that's probably what the original phrase, all things are lawful, because remember now, the ceremonial law has passed. Okay? You're no longer under the ceremonial law. What do I mean by the ceremonial law? Well, in the Old Testament, there were certain meats you couldn't eat. Uh, you, certain things you couldn't have. Because that is what God had set for the church for various reasons in the Old Testament. Either for hygienic purposes or for worship and so on. The teaching in Romans 14 is very clear. There no longer were requirements to keep the ceremonial law. But even then, we have to be very careful how we treat fellow believers. We have a very weak uh, conscience and weak in the faith there. A Christian has liberty to eat anything. But it's not lawful uh, to just do as you want, as we will think. It's going to set out some parameters here for us. Now, sadly, this was a problem that had to be dealt with at Galatia because there were those who were basically saying, if you just turn to Galatians 2, you need to be circumcised. Of course, as I said, the ceremonial law is passed. There were some... Even Peter, very sadly, and Barnabas, both of them were to blame, and I'll show you here what had happened when they ate with the Gentiles. Remember, Peter was at the church at Jerusalem with James, and Barnabas was here with him as well, is that they withdrew themselves from the Gentiles at mealtimes. And uh, Peter probably still with his Old Testament hat on or head on. He's not thinking right. Galatians 2.11 But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. This is Paul writing to him. Because he was to be blamed. What did you do, Peter? For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. So he ate with them at one occasion. But... When they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. He was more concerned about the Jews here, and, you know, this was wrong. He withdrew from the Gentiles at one point. As soon as the Jews came, he withdrew. Now notice, verse 13, And other Jews dissembled likewise with him. Peter calls others to sin, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Barnabas as well. You never would have thought Barnabas would do such a thing. 
but he was led astray by Peter. And this is why, you see, he had to be withstood to his face, even publicly, because he was to be blamed. He was going back to this separation between Jew and Gentile. Never to be the case. That is never to be the case. The Christian is one in Christ Jesus. And uh, here, we're reminded, just look then, turn to Galatians 5, 1, still in the book of Galatians. Paul even, he's been talking about circumcision and all matters of the law. He says, stand fast therefore in the liberty where Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's back to the things of the Old Testament ceremonial law, whether it be circumcision or food or meats or special feast days, those things are passed with the coming of Christ. And Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Don't think that your circumcision can do anything for you. It, it's of no avail. There were those that were saying, well, you know, circumcision, certain foods. Paul says, look, if you go back to these things, Christ means nothing. You are one and you are complete in Christ. So coming back here to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, he says, All things are lawful unto me. Again, I stress this is not to be taken in the absolute sense. But I want you to notice here two vital things which Paul annexes to this statement, which qualifies what God means by a certain principle. Notice verse 12. I want you to notice the first thing is this. When we make a decision, of course, all things are lawful unto me, but here's the qualifier. But all things are not expedient. That's the qualifier. Yes, you can do anything. You know, it's like they say you can eat poison, but you'll only eat it once. Because you're not going to live, are you? You eat poison once, you, you, you won't live to see tomorrow. But here in the extremity, but all things are not expedient. And we'll look at this word. That's the first qualifier. The second qualifier, notice, is the Christian's renewed mind and will that is determined to live for God's glory. That's the second qualifier. You see what I'm saying? See what Paul is saying? It's vital that we see it because you won't understand. Verse 12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Want to think about expediency. Expediency what? Well, this word, expediency in the Greek, sompharo is the word. It's a, a verb, and here it's given in the third person singular, and it really means to profit toward or to commend something. What he's saying is not everything commends the gospel. Not everything commends the Christian life. The word this word here means to profit. Not everything is going to profit you. And not anything, everything is going to commend the glorious gospel of God's saving grace. And you see, if you're a Christian, that's what you want to do. You want to glorify God. That's your primary objective, is to glorify God. Not everything was spiritually expedient. 
Some things, if you went in excess of something, it was extremely negative and harmful. You think of it. Some people, they drink themselves alcohol to their great harm. Is it expedient to get drunk? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is it expedient to be in excess of food so that you end up in the hospital? It's not. There are things that are lawful. It's lawful to eat. It's lawful to drink. I'll give you another example. It would be completely unlawful for me as a pastor to insist and to say every, to everybody who is a church member, you cannot have a television. Where would you find that in the Word of God? You wouldn't find it, would you? If we made a rule, such a rule, we, we would say, well, we become a cult. Where do you find that in the Bible, Pastor? It's not there. It is within your liberty to have one or not. For me, I came to the conclusion that it was not expedient for me to have one. And I realized this over time because, well, for several reasons, there's lots of commercial adverts you just wouldn't want to watch. There are lots of things on the television today, language, even on the, what I call the British Blaspheming Corporation. Blasphemies. You never know when they're going to come up. Nudity. All kinds of things. And I realize that as a Christian, for me, this is not expedient to my Christian life. Let alone, there were legitimate, and there are plenty of legitimate programs you can watch. Tremendous documentaries. But I would just be consumed with hours and hours, what's on next, what's on next, and you would just waste time. It's not profitable to the kingdom of heaven. And I, that is my Christian liberty, to choose whether or not to do this thing. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. There's another word, if you just turn to 1 Corinthians 10.23, that the apostle uses that brings on another nuance and not just nuance, but it strengthens really what he's saying here. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things, he says there in that verse, are lawful for me, but not all things, not all things, but all things edify not. Not everything builds up. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians. He says, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are a virtue, whatever things are noble, Meditate on these things. If something doesn't build you up, the word edify means to build up, it means to strengthen. Some things, though perfectly legitimate, just sap you of your energy, your time, and has a negative effect upon your spiritual life. You see, we are not. He's reminding us in this epistle here, in fact, in these coming chapters, no you're not, you're not your own. You were bought, look at verse 15, with a price. Even your body. Verse 16, 
and following, he says, Know ye not that you were bought with a price? Verse 20. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, the Christian doesn't view his life anymore. Well, this is my body, it's my time. You see, the Word of God is teaching us about moral things. I know some people don't like this. But the Bible does teach us, friends, that we are responsible for our morality, for what we do. It's all very well jumping up and down on our, in our Christian liberty and saying, well, I have a right to this, to that. That's not how you should think. That's not how I should think. Well, it's my right. Well, we will think your body belongs to the Lord Jesus. Every finger, every toe, every hair, your eyes, everything belongs to the Lord. And not everything you do is good. Not everything glorifies God. Not everything builds you up. In other words, there are always consequences to your choice, whether good or for evil. Time-wasting is a sin, isn't it? I'm sure we can have good quality downtime, but even in our downtime, it's not our own. It belongs to the Lord. Therefore, better not to do those things. It's not expedient, doesn't build up, and so on. The question is, is it profitable? Does it glorify God? That's what he deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. Can you say you're doing that thing to God's glory? If it's not profitable to the cause of Christ, if it doesn't redound to his glory, it can't be right. It's a simple principle, isn't it? So that's the first. Now there's a second reasoning that the Christian must reckon with. Look at verse 12b. All things are lawful for me. Have a look there. But I will not be brought under the power of any. Do you realize that certain things you can jump up and down and say, well, it's my right to eat this, to drink this, to do this, to do that. Do you realize that you might even be under the power of such a thing? Do you realize that? If something brings you, notice the text, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If something brings you under its power, you must know it's wrong, because it's ruling you. A man can be under the power of drink and become a drunk. A man can be under the power of food and become a glutton. The Bible has plenty to say on those two things. Plenty. We'll look at some this evening, if time permit. But if you just turn over to a few chapters, 1 Corinthians 9.24, I want you to see how Paul treated his body. And then I want to think about the body of our Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. 
Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run. Now look, he uses a couple of analogies here. First, as a runner in a marathon. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so as, and then he moves it to the word pugio, a, a fighter here. I fight not as one that beateth the air. I'm not sparring the air. I'm not punching the air, as it were. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Literally, I buffet my body, bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word is a dokimos. What he's saying is that I'm, I have disqualified myself for the ministry. Could you imagine a pastor standing up in the pulpit here as a drunk or as a glutton? And he's telling people, this is how you should live. Which how many are. How did our Lord Jesus Christ live? You know, he was accused as a wine-bibber and as a glutton, but he wasn't. There is absolutely no ways the Lord Jesus Christ was either of those things. Neither was Paul. Neither were any of the apostles. They all had to buffet their body. They saw how he lived. And God has bought our hands, our feet. Everything belongs to Christ. What does Paul say here? Verse 13, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. In other words, you are one. Your body, you, even every fiber of your being belongs to Christ, and it's to be used for him. But the lost man is under the dominion of sin, and is under the dominion of the power of the flesh. When you are saved, my friend, God gives you this desire to glorify God in your body, your whole life. Paul says, I buffet my body. Paul says in Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members, he's there speaking about the members of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those alive from the dead. You were dead. You were living according to the lusts of the flesh, whatever they may be. Whether it is your eyes, you said, when sin said, give me your eyes, you said, here, here's my eyes. Here's my belly. Here's my appetite. Here are my desires. Here's my time. That's how you used to live. But when you're saved, 
You present now your members of your body as alive from the dead. And you present them to God for the service of Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 12? He says, therefore by the tender mercies of God, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. That's the whole of your body. Feet, hands, everything. Face, stomach, everything belongs to God. And notice what he says now, following those two principles, which is annexed to that first statement. Meats for the belly. Yes, it's, you know, so you might be well, but not for gluttony and belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. There's a time when your, when your body is going to go to the grave. And there might be some people who say, well, does it really matter? Well, it does matter. The body is still, notice, the Lord's. It's not for fornication. It's not for abuse. It's not for anything else. Just as the Sabbath was made for man, the body is made, look, for God. The body is made for the glory of God. Meat is to be used for the good of the body, not for the abuse of it, and not for the demise of it. It's a dishonor to a Christian to abuse the body in any way, shape, or form. We ought to conserve it as best as we can, not to ruin it. Again, how do you think the Lord Jesus Christ looked after his body? I don't believe for a minute he was a drunk or a glutton. He was accused of that. Why? Because he sat down with people who he just did, who were doing those things. Remember how he sat, even talking to people, perhaps even like Zacchaeus, maybe people who had a lot of wealth, opulence, extravagance, but he did not partake in that. You know, there are many people that use that as an excuse to go and evangelize in the pub. Or go to the pub. Well, Jesus hung out at the pub. He didn't hang out at pubs. He spoke to those people. The scriptures tell us, do they not? Do not even give the appearance of evil. We're told when John came preaching, they said he had a devil. <laughs> we read, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, Yet, you say he hath a devil. They will always try to find something. But then you notice what they say about the Lord Jesus. They called him a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. He wasn't either of those. But it says there, but wisdom is justified of all of her children. Who are Christ's children? His disciples. In other words, he was saying, look at the apostles that follow me. These men were with him. And they watched him live. He didn't abuse the body, nor his time, nor anything. Neither should we. We need to be disciplined. Paul says, I buffet my body and bring it into subjection. Now, just something I want to say. When the Lord had in mind, this is why I read from Psalm 139. If you just turn there to Psalm 139, when the Lord had us in mind, even before he made the world, 
and the universe. He knew what our hands would look like, our feet would look like, how tall we would be, how short we would be, all the things that we might even struggle with. He knew all of those things. Look at Psalm 139 verse 14. David says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When he speaks here of the substance, the Hebrew word has to do with my physical being was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance. Yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. He says, all of my members, the members of my body, you knew them. Every wrinkle on my face, on my hands. Why? Because he was going to purchase it. Did you hear me? Purchase it. What is going to happen? This same body, these hands that I'm looking at, the stomach, this person is going to be raised, going to be buried one day, unless the Lord comes. But this same body will be raised to an incorruptible body, a glorious body, a heavenly body. And the Lord died to purchase these hands, these feet, so I better look after them. Right? Paul says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. And so on. We must remember, what does Paul say in Romans 6? Sorry, Romans 8. He speaks about the same spirit that quickened us will raise this body, this very body. He says in verse 8 of Romans 8, So then they that are of the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead. Because of sin. It's dead to sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now notice. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. From where? The grave. Now when the Lord Jesus Christ was raised they could recognize him. Couldn't they? When Moses was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, they could recognize each other. Well, certainly Peter did, and the others. And they were, said Moses was talking to Elijah and so on. God is going to raise us, and whatever we have, we need to look after. Why? Because it belongs to Christ. It's not ours. Your hands are not yours anymore. They used to be under the dominion of sin. 
but now you're under grace. Romans 5.21 Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies, says Paul. Now, Paul is not laboring this year, but he is impressing upon them because they are one in Christ. They are joined to Christ. Notice the connection he makes. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? It's been said, you know, he even watches over the, the sand and the ashes of his dead saints. He knows where everyone lies, where they're buried, and they've gone even sunk to the deepest parts of the ocean. He will raise them. And therefore, our bodies are to be holy. They're not to be joined. He says, do you join your body to a harlot? He says, no. You don't join yourself either to sin. Because that body has been purchased. Just as your soul has been purchased, so is your body. You know, we often forget that. We are body and soul. But don't forget the body. What ye know not, that which he that is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. If you are really joined to the Lord, do not allow your lusts to reign over you. Christ must reign. And he's purchased your soul and your body for his glory. This is why I say, and I always, when I give any young man advice for marriage or anything like that, when you get married, and if you want a godly young woman in your life, and same for women, what do you do? You need to get as close to the Lord as possible. Because you two are going to be one flesh. And men, you need to be preparing yourselves now for marriage because you will be looking after another one. Not just yourself. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. So, look at the application, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. How? By the washing of the word. Now, young men, and even older men who don't have a wife, do you want a wife? Are you washing yourself in the word? Because if you're not, You'd be no good as a husband. No good. And I mean that. Because the good is that we should be consecrated to Christ. And one of the things that the Lord teaches us is self-control. Galatians 5.22 We are told, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. It's that word temperance which means self-control. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. Don't jump on your Christian liberty, my friend. 
you have this one aim in view. Does it edify? Does it glorify? Does it build up? Then you know whether it's right to do it. If not, you have no right to venture there. You can jump up and down all about what's right and wrong. But if you're not asking those questions, your whole thought process is wrong. Paul says, what does he say? Verse 12 is so important, we close with it. What does he say here? He says, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Is it expedient? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. My friend, is something in your life or my life got power over us. Is it drink? Is it food? Is it some other passion? Whatever it is, Paul says, I bring this body into subjection. I buffet it. Because it belongs to Christ. And I must serve him. And I must live for the glory of my Lord. One day this body will stand before God. And we will have to give an account of ourselves. Amen.